Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. designed to help you fall asleep. Find us at snoozecast.com, and if you enjoy our show, please share us with a friend. This episode is brought to you by The Breath of the Wind. Tonight, we'll read poems from north of Boston, a collection from Robert Frost, first published in 1914. Most of the poems resemble short dramas or dialogues. It is also called a book of people because most of the poems deal with New England themes and Yankee farmers. Known for his realistic depictions of rural life and his command of American colloquial speech, Robert Frost frequently wrote about settings from rural life in New England in the early 20th century using them to examine complex social and philosophical themes. Frequently honored during his lifetime, Frost is the only poet to receive four Pulitzer Prizes for poetry. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. Mending wall. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen ground swell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps even two can pass abreast 
The work of hunters is another thing. I have come after them and made repair. Where they have left not one stone on a stone, but they would have the rabbit out of hiding to please the yelping dogs. The gaps, I mean, no one has seen them made or heard them made, but at spring, mending time, we find them there. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go, to each the boulders that have fallen to each, and some are loaves, and some so nearly balls, we have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay where you are until our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling them. Oh, just another kind of outdoor game. One on a side. It comes to little more. There where it is we do not need the wall. He is all pine, and I am apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. Spring is the mischief in me, and I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But here there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. I could say elves to him, but it's not elves exactly, and I'd rather he said it for himself. I see him there, bringing a stone grasped firmly by the top in each hand, like an old stone savage armed. He moves in darkness, as it seems to me, not of woods only in the shade of trees. He will not go behind his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well. He says again, good fences make good neighbors. Blueberries. You ought to have seen what I saw on my way to the village through Mortensen's pasture today. Blueberries as big as the end of your thumb, real sky blue and heavy and ready to drum in the cavernous pail of the first one to come and all ripe together, not some of them green, and some of them ripe, you ought to have seen. I don't know what part of the pasture you mean. You know where they cut off the woods. Let me see. It was two years ago, or no. Can it be? No longer than that? And the following fall, the fire ran and burned it all up but the wall. Why? 
there hasn't been time for the bushes to grow. That's always the way with the blueberries, though. There may not have been the ghost of a sign of them anywhere under the shade of the pine. But get the pine out of the way you may burn the pasture all over until not a fern or grass blade is left not to mention a stick and presto they're up all around you as thick and hard to explain as a conjurer's trick. It must be on charcoal they fatten their fruit. I taste in them sometimes the flavor of soot. And after all, really, they're ebony-skinned. The blue's but a mist from the breath of the wind, a tarnish that goes at a touch of the hand, and less than the tan with which pickers are tanned. Does Mortensen know what he has, do you think? He may and not care, and so leave the chewink to gather them for him. You know what he is. He won't make the fact that they're rightfully his an excuse for keeping us other folk out. I wonder you didn't see Lauren about. The best of it was that I did. Do you know, I was just getting through what the field had to show, and over the wall and into the road, when who should come by with a Democrat load of all the young chattering Laurens alive, but Lauren, the fatherly, out for a drive? He saw you then? What did he do? Did he frown? He just kept nodding his head up and down. You know how politely he always goes by. But he thought a big thought. I could tell by his eye which being expressed might be this in effect. I have left those there berries, I shrewdly suspect. To ripen too long, I am greatly to blame. He's a thriftier person than some I could name. He seems to be thrifty, and hasn't he need, with the mouths of all those young Laurens to feed? He has brought them all up on wild berries, they say. Like birds, they store a great many away. They eat them the year round, and those they don't eat, they sell in the store and buy shoes for their feet. Who cares what they say? It's a nice way to live. Just taking what nature is willing to give, not forcing her hand with Harrow and plow, I wish you had seen his perpetual bow, and the air of the youngsters, not one of them turned, and they looked so solemn, absurdly concerned. I wish I knew half what the flock of them know, of where all the berries and other things grow, cranberries and bogs, and raspberries on top of the boulder-strewn mountain, and when they will crop. I met them one day, and each had a flower, stuck into his berries as fresh as a shower. Some strange kind, they told me it hadn't a name. I've told you how once not long after we came, I almost provoked poor Lauren to mirth, by going to him of all people on earth to ask if he knew any fruit to be had for the picking.
The rascal. He said he'd be glad to tell if he knew, but the year had been bad. There had been some berries, but those were all gone. He didn't say where they had been. He went on. I'm sure, I'm sure, as polite as could be. He spoke to his wife in the door. Let me see. Mame, we don't know any good burying place. It was all he could do to keep a straight face. If he thinks all the fruit that grows wild is for him, he'll find he's mistaken. See here, for a whim. We'll pick in the Mortensen's pasture this year. We'll go in the morning, that is, if it's clear. And the sun shines out warm, the vines must be wet. It's so long since I picked, I almost forget. How we used to pick berries. We took one look round, then sank out of sight like trolls underground, and saw nothing more of each other, or heard. Unless when you said, I was keeping a bird, away from its nest, and I said it was you. Well, one of us is, for complaining it flew, around and around us, and then for a while we picked, till I feared you had wandered a mile, and I thought I had lost you. I lifted a shout too loud for the distance you were, it turned out, for when you made answer your voice was as low. As talking you stood up beside me, you know, we shan't have the place to ourselves to enjoy. Not likely, when all the young Laurens deploy, they'll be there tomorrow or even tonight. They won't be too friendly, they may be polite. To people they look on as having no right to pick where they're picking, but we won't complain. You ought to have seen how it looked in the rain, the fruit mixed with water and layers of leaves, like two kinds of jewels, a vision for thieves. After Apple Picking My long two-pointed ladders sticking through a tree toward heaven still, and there's a barrel that I didn't fill beside it, and there may be two or three apples I didn't pick upon some bough but I am done with apple picking now. Essence of winter sleep is on the night. The scent of apples. I am drowsing off. I cannot rub the strangeness from my sight. I got from looking through a pane of glass. I skimmed this morning from the drinking trough and held against the world of hoary grass. It melted and I let it fall and break. But I was well upon my way to sleep before it fell, and I couldn't tell what form my dreaming was about to take. Magnified apples appear and disappear, stemmed and blossomed, and every fleck of russet showing clear. My instep arch not only keeps the ache, it keeps the pressure of a ladder round. I feel the ladder sway as the boughs bend. 
and I keep hearing from the cellar bin the rumbling sound of load on load of apples coming in. For I have had too much of apple picking. I am overtired of the great harvest I myself desired. There were ten thousand thousand fruit to touch, cherish in hand, lift down and not let fall. For all that struck the earth, no matter if not bruised or spiked with stubble, went surely to the cider apple heap as of no worth. One can see what will trouble this sleep of mine, whatever sleep it is. Were he not gone, the woodchuck could say whether it's like his long sleep as I describe its coming on or just some human sleep. The Woodpile Out walking in the frozen swamp one gray day, I paused and said, I will turn back from here. No, I will go on farther, and we shall see. The hard snow held me, save where now and then one foot went down. The view was all in lines, straight up and down of tall, slim trees. Too much alike to mark or name a place, by so as to say for certain I was here, or somewhere else, I was just far from home. A small bird flew before me. He was careful to put a tree between us when he lighted and say no word to tell me who he was, who was so foolish as to think what he thought. He thought that I was after him for a feather, the white one in his tail, like one who takes everything said as personal to himself. One flight out sideways would have undeceived him. And then there was a pile of wood for which I forgot him and let his little fear carry him off the way I might have gone without so much as wishing him good night. He went behind it to make his last stand. It was a cord of maple cut and split and piled and measured four by four by eight. And not another like it could I see. No runner tracks in this year's snow looped near it, and it was older, sure than this year's cutting, or even last year's, or the years before. The wood was gray, and the bark warping off it, and the pile somewhat sunken. Clematis had wound strings round and round it like a bundle. What held it, though, on one side was a tree, still growing, and on one a stake and prop, these latter about to fall. I thought that only someone who lived in turning to fresh tasks could so forget his handiwork 
on which he spent himself, the labor of his axe, and leave it there far from a useful fireplace to warm the frozen swamp as best it could with the slow, smokeless burning of decay. Good Hours I had, for my winter evening walk, no one at all with whom to talk. But I had the cottages in a row, up to their shining eyes in snow. And I thought I had the folk within. I had the sound of a violin. I had a glimpse through curtain laces of youthful forms and youthful faces. I had such company outward bound. I went till there were no cottages found. I turned and repented, but coming back, I saw no window but that was black. Over the snow my creaking feet disturbed the slumbering village street. Like profanation by your leave, at ten o'clock of a winter eve. The Generations of Men A governor it was proclaimed this time, when all who would come seeking in New Hampshire ancestral memories might come together, and those of the name Stark gathered in bow a rock-strewn town where farming has fallen off, and sprout lands flourish where the axe has gone. Someone had literally run to earth in an old cellar hole in a by-road, the origin of all the family there. Thence they were sprung, so numerous a tribe that now not all the houses left in town made shift to shelter them without the help of here and there a tent and grove and orchard. They were at bow, but that was not enough. Nothing would do but they must fix a day to stand together on the crater's verge that turned them on the world and try to fathom the past and get some strangeness out of it. But rain spoiled all. The day began uncertain, with clouds low trailing and moments of rain that misted. The young folk held some hope out to each other till well toward noon when the storm settled down with a swish in the grass. What if the others are there? They said. It isn't going to rain. Only one from a farm not far away strolled thither, not expecting he would find anyone else, but out of idleness. One and one other, yes, for there were two. The second round the curving hillside road was a girl, and she halted some way off to reconnoiter, and then made up her mind at least to pass by and see who he was and perhaps hear some word about the weather. This was some Stark she didn't know, 
nodded. No fat today, he said. It looks that way. She swept the heavens, turning on her heel. I only idled down. I idled down. Provision there had been for just such meeting of stranger cousins in a family tree, drawn on a sort of passport with the branch of the one bearing it done in detail, some zealous one's laborious device. She made a sudden movement toward her bodice. As one who clasps her heart, they laughed together. Stark? he inquired. No matter for the proof. Yes, Stark. And you? I'm Stark. He drew his passport. You know, we might not be and still be cousins. The town is full of chases, lows, and baileys, all claiming some priority in starkness. My mother was Elaine, yet might have married anyone upon earth, and still her children would have been Starks, and doubtless here today. You riddle with your genealogy like a viola. I don't follow you. I only mean my mother was a Stark several times over, and by marrying father, no more than brought us back into the name. One ought not to be thrown into confusion by a plain statement of relationship, but I own what you say makes my head spin. You take my card. You seem so good at such things. And see if you can reckon our cousinship. Why not take seats here on the cellar wall and dangle feet among the raspberry vines under the shelter of the family tree? Just so. That ought to be enough protection. Not from the rain. I think it's going to rain. It's raining. No, it's misting. Let's be fair. Does the rain seem to you to cool the eyes? The situation was like this. The road bowed outward on the mountain, halfway up, and disappeared and ended not far off. No one went home that way. The only houses beyond where they were was a shattered seed pod, and below roared a brook hidden in trees, the sound of which was silence for the place. This he sat listening to till she gave judgment. On father's side, it seems, where, let me see, don't be too technical. You have three cards, four cards, one yours, three mine, one for each branch of the Stark family I'm a member of. Do you know a person so related to herself is supposed to be mad? I may be mad. You look so, 
sitting out here in the rain, studying genealogy with me you never saw before? What will we come to with all this pride of ancestry? We Yankees, I think we're all mad. Tell me why we're here, drawn into town about this cellar hole, like wild geese on a lake before a storm. What do we see in such a hole, I wonder? The Indians had a myth of Chikamostok, which means the seven caves that we came out of. This is the pit from which we Starks were digged. You must be learned. That's what you see in it? And what do you see? Yes, what do I see? First let me look. I see raspberry vines. Mm. If you're just going to use your eyes, just hear what I see. It's a little boy. As pale and dim as a match flame in the sun. He's groping in the cellar after jam. He thinks it's dark and it's flooded with daylight. He's nothing. Listen. When I lean like this, I can make out old Grand Sir Stark distinctly with his pipe in his mouth and his brown jug. Bless you. It isn't Grand Sir Stark. It's Granny. But the pipe's there and smoking and the jug. She's after cider. She's thirsty. Here's hoping she gets her drink and gets out safely. Tell me about her. Does she look like me? She should, shouldn't she? You're so many times over-descended from her. I believe she does look like you. Stay the way you are. The nose is just the same, and so's the chin. Making allowance. Making due allowance. You poor, dear, great, 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 granny. See that you get her greatness right. Don't stint her. Yes, it's important. Though you think it isn't, I won't be teased.